Good morning again. Good to see you all this morning. Our sermon text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. If you'll turn with me there. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Before we read that together, let's pray together one more time. Our Father, we... Uh, know how much we need your Holy Spirit. Uh, We need your Holy Spirit to understand your word. Uh, We need your your Holy Spirit to believe your word. Uh, We need your Holy Spirit to uh, take it in and internalize it and be shaped by it. And so we we pray that now, uh, during this time, that you would use your spirit to uh, speak through me, Uh, what is true and right and good, that you would use your spirit to work in us uh, and to transform us and remake us in the image of Jesus. Uh, Father, uh, do that now, we pray uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, picking up in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, uh, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control, At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Well, I started out a couple of weeks ago with a confession. I have another confession this morning. I love folding laundry. I know, that's weird. Uh, But there is little more satisfying to me than having all the laundry folded and knowing that Marie Kondo would be impressed with my sock drawer. (laughs) Now, my sock drawer doesn't always look amazing. In fact, if you looked at it this week, you'd wonder what I was talking about. But there are those blessed days where everything seems right with the world and my laundry is folded and organized. Uh, You know, I'm not really uh, a particularly organized person otherwise. I remember a friend in Philly once complimented me on being organized, and I replied without hesitation, I'm really disorganized on the inside. So I force myself to be organized on the outside, and sometimes it works, and sometimes not so much. In fact, I tend to swing kind of wildly from David Allen to complete disarray. Um, The truth is that most of us do function better with order when our world is rightly put together. Um, Almost all child psychologists will tell you that children thrive on structure, Uh, In fact, they say things like structure improves your child's brain and routines give children a sense of security and help them develop self-discipline. And one even says kids need structure more than warmth from their parents, though, of course, they say both is best. 
Um, the fact that children thrive on structure is interesting in part because uh, the structure that they thrive on is imposed from the outside. It's the structure that their parents bring to their lives. Of course, the goal is developing uh, internal discipline or self-control, but that begins with external structures and routines. Well, what we're going to see this morning is that this need for or even desire for order is, is not an anomaly, but it's actually inherent in the way that God created the world. Now, the result for some of us is we tend to become control freaks, seeking, seeking to micromanage every detail of our lives, um, sometimes every detail of other people's lives as well. Uh, but order overreach, right, which can be suffocating and oppressive, uh, that doesn't negate this fundamental need. And of course, we experience disorder every day. Uh, we experience disorder in our relationships and in our worlds and even in our hearts. And so our outline this morning is, is pretty basic. It's a basic creation, fall, redemption scheme. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, order, disorder, and Reorder or restored order. Uh, first order. <coughs> you know, whatever else Genesis chapter 1 might teach us, it certainly teaches us that God created an ordered universe. Genesis 1 begins with a world formless and empty, unformed and unfilled. But as you read through Genesis 1, on days 1 through 3, God fashions these habitats, and then days 4 through 6, God fills those habitats with inhabitants, uh, the sun and the moon and the stars for the night and the day, birds and fish for the sky and the sea, land animals for the dry ground. And the, the climax in uh, Genesis 1 of day 3 is God creating vegetation and fruit-bearing trees, and including one garden in particular. And the climax of day six is God creating man, whose job it is to tend and keep that garden. God places everything under humanity's feet. Uh, they are to rule over the creatures and subdue the earth itself. You see, from the very beginning, Adam is, is like a zookeeper overseeing the animals uh, and like a gardener bringing order to the unruly mass of vines and bushes and trees and flowers. And this wasn't frustrating in the beginning. Uh, the ground and animals didn't fight back. Uh, everything did exactly uh, what God intended for it to do. But Adam's job, as it were, uh, was to continue what God had begun in ordering the creation. God had started with the chaotic waters of the deep and brought order and peace. And Adam and Eve were to continue to bring order to creation in imitation of their father. Again, just picture a, a beautifully manicured garden or a well-run zoo, right? This was humanity's role, to bring order, to create peace, and to bring out the beauty that was inherent there. Everything had a place. Humanity's job was to figure out what that was and make sure everything uh, stayed in its place. We see this in Psalm 8, which is quoted here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Psalm 8, Hebrews says, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And see, everything from the beginning was placed under the feet of man. Human beings weren't meant to be dictators. Uh, for one, their, their role was uh, for the good of creation and for the glory of God, right? They weren't dictators, they were caretakers. 
Second, there's always a balance, right, between freedom and limits. Roses need room to grow and lions need room to run. And so Adam and Eve needed to be attentive to the nature of each thing, giving it the room it needed to be all that God created it to be, but also creating boundaries so that each thing could flourish in its place. I think uh, boundaries are important, uh, and each thing being in its place is important. When Deborah and I lived in Philly, we had cockroaches. Everybody in Philly has cockroaches. My apologies to bug lovers in the room. I don't know if Tommy's here. But, um, but every time I saw a cockroach in our apartment, I would stomp on it. I was doing my little part to subdue the earth. Uh, I don't know where cockroaches are supposed to be, but I knew they weren't supposed to be in my living room. And so I was bringing order and harmony and peace to our one-bedroom apartment. It's a little picture of what Adam was supposed to do. But it wasn't the lion or the rosebush or even the cockroach that broke out of God's order. It was man. Which brings us to our next point, order and disorder. Adam and Eve broke out of God's order. In fact, the first sin, the, the, in that first sin, the order of creation was completely upended. Uh, you may know the very thing God gave them to care for, the garden, became the opportunity for their sin. Though humanity was to rule over the beasts, uh, the serpent, possessed by the devil himself, took it upon himself to lord it over humanity and lead them astray. Though within marriage the husband was to lead and protect his wife, Adam remains passive and silent, watching the whole thing take place. Though Adam was to listen to the voice of God, he set himself and his interests against God's and listened instead to the voice of his wife. Every created relationship was turned on its head by sin. And what was the result? Well, the result was even greater breakdown of the created order. Right? There, there's an irony often to God's judgment, a just irony, but an irony nonetheless. People rebel against God thinking it will make me happy, and so God gives them over to their rebellion. And the very thing they sought to make themselves happy ends up destroying them. Now, the, the obvious example of that is, is drug use, right? I mean, that's kind of a cliche, right? So, something you think will make you happy ends up destroying you. But that's just the extreme example of the general principle, so humanity rejected God's order in creation, and the created order begins to further devolve. Pain in childbearing, frustration in work, thorns among the fruit trees, conflict in marriage. And these were really just the tip of the iceberg for the breakdown of the physical and the social order. Uh, disease is the breakdown of the body, and mental illness is the breakdown of the mind, and the extremes of rage and depression are the breakdown of emotions and emotional control. Tsunamis and tornadoes are the breakdown of the natural order. Murder and war are the ultimate breakdown of society, but of course, enmity and strife and jealousy and bitterness and betrayal all fit into that category as well. Most of those things are not sin, by the way, right? But, you know, Alzheimer's and earthquakes aren't sinful, nor are they necessarily caused by the one suffering under them, but they are the result of sin's presence in the world and the breakdown of the created order as a whole. Well, where do you experience that breakdown? Uh, where is your world disordered? Uh, what physical disorder do you experience, whether serious disease or annoying aches and pains? Uh, what interpersonal disorder? Where do you experience the, the breakdown of relationships as God intended them to be? 
Where do you experience jealousy and bickering and abuse and loneliness? Where are you in the midst of conflict at work or at school or in your home? And what broader social disorder do you face, right? Whether true injustice or political or civil or ethnic strife. If nowhere else, right, we all experience this breakdown in our hearts and in our relationship to our Heavenly Father. We struggle with unwanted behaviors. We do what we don't want to do. We think what we don't want to think. We feel far from God and full of guilt and shame. That's disorder at its root. The world is not as God intended it to be. And so we have God's order instituted at creation with humanity called to further that order in the world. But rather than live in that order, humanity upended it. And disorder has been the result ever since. (coughs) Well, that brings us to point three, reorder. Now, I know I'm using the word reorder in a way it's not normally used. Uh, If order is a state of peace because everything is rightly related and in its place, and disorder is a state of confusion and things being out of place, then reorder should be a state of restored or renewed order. I know that's not really exactly the way we use the word, but I'm going to use it that way anyway. Um, I think it'll be okay. Reorder. Uh, What are some ways in which you have sought to restore order to your little corner of the world? I mean, we restore order in all kinds of ways. Some of them very simple, right? Like mowing the lawn. Uh, Some of them a little more complex, like trying to teach fifth graders math. Uh, It may be as personal as as keeping a planner or making a budget or as outward-looking as raising money to care for the homeless or helping someone out with a flooding basement. We want to make the world a better place to clear out some of the chaos, whether the chaos in our minds or the chaos in our homes or the chaos out in the world. Of course, sometimes that goes wrong. Uh, We're trying to restore order to the world and and we we overreach, for example, right? When I try to impose order beyond my God-given sphere of responsibility, we get get nosy, we get into other people's business. Uh, Sometimes it goes wrong through self-reliance, right? When I use force to try to accomplish what only God's Spirit can truly accomplish, like trying to use force when we should use persuasion, uh, when I seek to control others rather than to lead them. Or self-centeredness, right? When I demand order from others rather than creating order for others. Seeking order for my own good rather than for the good of others and the glory of God. Sometimes we, we can get just plain cruel, right? We can bring down the hammer in the name of order and peace when we should show grace and patience. Sometimes it's excess, right? When we don't understand the relationship between freedom and order and we try to micromanage every detail of life. In short, when we act like dictators instead of caretakers, thinking we can force the world to fit our plan for our good rather than laying down our lives for the plan of the Father and the good of His world. We try to deal with the disorder of the world and end up just becoming another part of it. But giving up is not really an option either, right? Because chaos and anarchy are not the answer. All our failures to bring order show is that our hearts, too, need to be reordered. Which, of course, brings us to Jesus in Hebrews 2. I know you might be thinking, well, what does this all have to do with Hebrews? And the answer, of course, is this is the context in which what Hebrews says about Jesus makes sense. 
It's the brokenness of order and the failure of humanity to rightly order creation or their hearts that shows us the need of one who would come and put things right. One who would have all things under his feet. Hebrews tells us here about the past, present, and future of Jesus' order-restoring work. First, the past. You know, Jesus in his earthly ministry, you may remember, he gave lots of signs that he had come to restore order. He, he said to the wind and the waves, peace, be still. Uh, he commanded the demons and rebuked illnesses, and everything seemed to obey him. But when Hebrews talks about Jesus restoring work, it doesn't look to his miracles or to his authority or to his teaching, but his humility and his suffering and his death. In verse 7, Hebrews applies Psalm 8 to Jesus when it says, You made him for a little while lower than the angels. Notice the time limit, a little while. That's not quite the way Psalm 8 reads. The temporal element is not prominent there in Psalm 8. Uh, But Hebrews brings it out, first quoting Psalm 8, and then repeating the phrase and applying it explicitly to Jesus in verse 9. What does it mean that Jesus became, for a little while, lower than the angels? Some think that it refers to Jesus' humanity. He was God, and he took on humanity, and therefore became lower than the angels. Uh, the, The problem with that, as far as it goes, is that Jesus is even now fully God and fully human, even as he reigns at the Father's right hand over heaven and earth. And so it can't be simply his humanity, so it must be something else. You might say, then, uh, that it is Jesus in his suffering and humiliation. I think this gets closer to the truth. It seems as if a little while lower in verse 9 is parallel to tasting death. You know, oftentimes we think of order as coming uh, for my own good and and by my own power, right? I, I seek to control others or control my circumstances or control my surroundings so that my life will go the way I want. But that's not what's going on here at all. Jesus comes to become for a little while lower than the angels, to experience the suffering of death, that he might taste death for everyone, Hebrews tells us. Jesus comes to restore order by taking the disorder of this world on himself at the cross, Jesus gets to a place of rule and authority not by stepping on the little people, not by manipulating, manipulating others to get his way, not putting himself first and looking out for number one and fighting tooth and nail in a dog-eat-dog world. No, Jesus comes to serve and to suffer and to die in weakness that we might have life. Jesus himself puts it this way in Mark ten forty-five. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, reorder comes not through the rejection of God's order, but through submission to it, not through self-seeking, but through self-sacrifice, and not by force, but in weakness. So often people think that if we want to see creation or society or a church or family restored or reformed or renewed, uh, we have to use force to get things done. The secular version of this looks to the state to make everything better. The the religious version sometimes looks to the church to do the same, but both at times are looking for the powers of this age, money and force and threats and bribery and manipulation, to bring the kingdom. As if with enough effort I could bring now the age to come. But no, Jesus comes in weakness 
to suffer and die for us, to taste death for us. And yet he doesn't stay there. And that brings us to the present, crowned with glory and honor. Uh, Jesus has been raised. He has received what Paul calls the crown of life, the glory of the resurrection. Jesus has been exalted as king, crowned as king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, Ephesians 1, Paul talks about this. He says, Jesus has been raised and exalted as king. All things have been put under his feet, all rule and authority, which includes the spiritual powers and authorities of this present age, as well as everything else. As mysterious as it is, uh, both the writer of Hebrews and Paul talk about the fact that there are other spiritual powers at work in the world, angels and demons. At times, God's people have had such a high view of the powers uh, of such powers, they believe that angels would rule the age to come. And Hebrews insists, no, right? Jesus became for a little while lower than the angels, but is now crowned with glory and honor. And Paul fills in the details in Ephesians when he says, Jesus has been raised far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is to be named, right? Whatever angelic names there might be, Jesus is higher than them all. <laughs> Hebrews says that though nothing is outside of Jesus' control, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. You see, some eyewitness the resurrection, Jesus' glory and honor. We see him now by faith. We believe that he is raised and seated in heaven. But no one sees him reigning over all, right? As we look at the world, it still seems more chaotic than ordered. Paul clarifies in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Jesus is presently destroying every rule and every authority and power. For, Paul says, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The Father has put Jesus' enemies under his feet by right and in principle, but Jesus is presently putting them under his feet in actuality. what, what, What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, first and foremost, as the gospel goes forth, that the gospel that Jesus has risen from the dead and is now Lord and the Son who reigns. And as Jesus pours out his spirit so that we might respond to that gospel in faith and repentance, and as people like you and me come to submit to King Jesus, as we align ourselves under his rule, the world is being reordered. And so it begins with the church, right? As we seek to reorder our lives by the power of the spirit under the reign of King Jesus, and as we seek to reorder our lives not by power and force, but by serving others in weakness. That new order expands as we call others to do the same, to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God has set his king not simply on Zion, but on the throne in heaven, and that the Father has given the nations to Jesus, that all things are being placed under his feet. And as we call people to repentance and faith in this king. See, Christ became for a little while lower than the angels, but then was exalted in his resurrection and has been crowned with glory and honor and is even now subduing all things under his feet through the gospel. And yet there's more to come. That brings us to the future when all things will finally be under his feet. Um, It's so easy to be either despairing about the future or overconfident about the present. You know, sometimes people get so wrapped up in the troubles of the present, they lose all hope for the future. And other times Christians, and some non, become overconfident about the present. The Christian version is to say that Jesus is reigning, therefore everything in your life should be honky-dory. And you shouldn't get sick or sad, you shouldn't feel like a failure or be financially broke. Jesus is reigning, so everything should be good. 
But when we think like this, we fail to understand the times. The Father has placed everything under Jesus' feet and is placing everything under his feet and will finally, on the last day, place everything under his feet. Uh, it's as if a, a dad uh, gives to his son a plot of land to build a house and the son goes out and looks at the land, which is all overgrown with tw- trees and weeds and tangles and thorn bushes. And he thinks, well, it doesn't look like much. It's already been given. It's already been purposed. But that purpose is not yet fully realized. And God has placed everything under the feet of Jesus, but that has not yet fully been realized. Jesus is in the process of clearing the ground, subduing the nations under his feet through the gospel. And one day Jesus will return and make all things new. And on that day, God will wipe every tear from every eye and death will be no more. And there will be no more sadness and no more tears and no more pain. See, for the moment, we experience the disorder of this age. We experience suffering and disease and broken relationships, remaining sin, abiding guilt and shame. But Jesus dealt with the root of all disorder when he dealt with sin at the cross. And he is at work by the gospel, bringing his enemies into submission under his feet as we come to him in repentance and faith. He will finally conquer all his and our enemies. Even death itself will be no more on the last day. Well, we must not misunderstand his promises for the present, as if once you become a Christian, everything will be perfect from then on. We must not neglect his promises for the future, as if there was no hope of perfection ever. Rather, we rest. We rest in Jesus' work in the, present, in the past. We trust in his work in the present, and we hope in his work in the future. The world is disordered at the moment, but often our attempts to control only make things worse. Jesus came rather in weakness to take on the disorder of this world at the cross, that true order might be restored in the resurrection. He who has entered into a new order by his resurrection is making all things new and will make all things new on the last day. The world will be put back together and order will be restored. And so for now we rest, seeking to reorder our lives under King Jesus, calling others to submit to him and hoping in his return and the renewal of all things on the last day. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that our lives are often disordered, uh, not uh, what you intended for them to be. Yet we know that Jesus has come to restore order and to make all things new. We pray that you would help us, help us to rest in him, uh, to submit our lives to him, and to hope in the day when all things will be put right under his feet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.